0: Genesis chapter 40 Ooh. is where we will be looking. We're getting through Genesis here. I'm just going to read it from there. <laughs> if you remember, Joseph in the last chapter, um, remember he, uh, Potiphar's wife there had the thing for him and uh, tried to go after him, but Joseph was faithful and said, No, not going to do it. And... Uh, so then she grabbed his garment and made it look like he sexually molested her or something. So then he was thrown in prison by the king. Um, but what we, see, what we see happening repeatedly with Joseph here is he he gets betrayed or some terrible thing happens to him. But then God puts him in a position where he gains a responsibility or authority. Like we started with his... his uh, his father where his father put him in charge of the other brothers and then when he was betrayed and sold into slavery potiphar put him in charge of his household and then here in this chapter here he gets thrown into prison and we see that the prison guard gives him authority or gives him, puts him in the responsibility over the whole uh, the prison that where he was at as we will see so we just see a repeated pattern here of, of joseph being given responsibility, whereas I see God preparing him for when he would have that responsibility to oversee all of Egypt, as we will see in future chapters. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. So let's read Genesis, Genesis chapter 40, starting in verse 1. Now it happened that after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. And and the captain of the bodyguard appointed Joseph as overseer of them, over them. And he attended to them and they were in confinement for some time. And then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. Now Joseph came to them in the morning and saw them, and behold, they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were with him in confinement in his master's house, saying, Why are your faces so sad today? And then they said to him, We have had a dream, and there is no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said, Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Recount it to me, please. So the chief cupbearer recounted his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me and on the vine were three branches. And as it was budding, its blossoms came out and its clusters produced the grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. And so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. And then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it goes well with you, and, and please show me loving kindness by remembering me to Pharaoh and getting me out of this house. For I was in fact stolen from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I have done nothing that they should have put me into the pit. And the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably. And he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And in the top, of the, in the top basket, there was some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. then Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head off of you, and you will hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh off of you. Thus, it happened on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, That he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants, and he restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand, and he he hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had interpreted to to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. The word of the Lord. Another fun chapter. (laughs) Uh, This is a fascinating account in Scripture. However, it is a dangerous account in that its application has been very much abused by modern-day evangelicalism, Roman Catholicism, and Eastern Orthodoxy, and many others. There is even a subtle warning within the account itself that this account must be Understood and applied properly. Yet many within the three major legs of Christianity seem to ignore this warning. That warning is found in Joseph's rhetorical question that he posed to the inmates when they said they had no one to interpret their dreams. And Joseph said in in verse 8, Do not interpretations belong to God. I've heard so many uh, so called Bible teachers doing things like interpreting dreams. And claim to claim their interpretation is a word from God. M- Mark, you told me about uh, a few weeks ago that people were doing this for money at a local charismatic church. Mm-hmm. I also hear many of these same kinds of preachers take a text of Scripture and twist it to apply it to something totally different than what it was contextually addressing. You see that all the time, wherein they try to prophetically apply the interpretation of a text to modern day events we often see bible teachers doing this with the book of revelation for example in revelation chapter 9 the prophecy of the seven trumpets of god's wrath is being described and it's purposely described in very apocalyptic poetic and metaphoric language revelation 9 7 says in appearance in in appearance the locusts were like horses prepared for battle on their heads were were that Were what looked like crowns of gold, their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and strings like stings, that have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. When I first got saved, I heard several well-known Bible teachers dogmatically interpret this scripture to be talking about some kind of modern-day cobra helicopter or modern-day weaponry of some sort, as they tried to link this prophecy to events that may be seen in an upcoming third world war. Others have tried to link this to bio-warfare and these creatures being some kind of microscopic virus. Still others assert that these descriptions are of demons, who are let loose on the earth. But the point is that this text is purposely veiled and we won't have a full understanding of it until the prophecy is fulfilled because God is the interpreter of his word, not us. So all of this is speculative, though often used by modern day, uh, though often these modern day interpretations are taught as gospel truth. 22 years ago when I first got saved, I was hearing people say right after 9-11 that New York City is Mystery Babylon, and the smoke rising up from the ruins of the World Trade Center was somehow a fulfillment of Revelation 18. And that chapter describes the utter destruction of this Mystery Babylon in one day. Yet, New York still stands. New York was not destroyed, and so it was not a fulfillment of that prophecy. My point is that these interpretations of these texts are often very presumptuous and, again, utterly speculative. And the temptation to make certain prophetic scriptures apply to modern-day events is very strong. Therefore, we must always fall back to what Joseph said in this statement regarding things that are yet veiled. Do not interpretations belong to God? So that begs the question, how, how then can we know if we've interpreted any scripture? Accurately, Well, if our understanding of the text is consistent with what is being said contextually and historically, and if an interpretation is supported and not contradicted elsewhere in Scripture, then we can be confident in our understanding of it and its application for us. The Bible is abundantly clear on core Christian doctrines and their application for us today. But when it comes to prophecy that is yet unfulfilled, scripture even tells us that we are currently looking through a glass darkly. We can only catch some glimpses of shadows and shapes, metaphorically speaking, and until God turns on the lights, we really can't fully make out the details of what we are looking at in future prophecies. And though it's exciting to speculate on prophecy, we really can't be dogmatic about many of the details that lead up to the assured second coming of Christ. But Christ's second coming itself is the exception to that rule. That we can be certain of from scripture that it will happen. But what about Joseph? He didn't even have a Bible to look at back then. And yet he presumed his interpretations of the dreams of these two inmates were from God. Let me read the verse again. Verse 8, it says, Then they said to him, We have had a dream, and there is no one to, to, to interpret it. And then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Recount it to me, please. Joseph confidently made himself a representative of God, assuming that he could give them God's interpretation. The men told him what they dreamt, and he immediately gave them the interpretations. Now, isn't that a bit presumptuous of Joseph? How is this different from the many charismatic Prophecy poachers of today who twist scripture and say, "Thus saith the Lord." How can Joseph assert, "Thus saith the Lord" regarding this interpretation, and not the Hale Lindsay's or the John Haggies of today regarding helicopters and tanks in Revelation nine, or the blood moons of the Book of Joel? Well, this is what the prophets of the Old Testament did. The Holy Spirit came upon them and gave them God's word and they knew they were given this gift. And the results proved that they were the true prophets of God, who were not profiting on these oracles, unlike the many today who sell their books in Christian bookstores to the masses and make money. But God actually gave Joseph this interpretation and proved that he spoke to Joseph, because three days later, his prophetic interpretation came true. Joseph was also given uh, given dreams in the previous chapter, two dreams in the previous chapter, wherein his brothers and father would be bowing to him, and that will come true in future chapters. God confirmed to Joseph that he had somehow he confirmed to him that he had this prophetic gift. God has provided no such confirmation for any of these modern day self appointed prophets that are out there who profit greatly from the prophecies that never get fulfilled. Years ago, I was enamored with an author named Jonathan Kahn, who wrote uh, this book called The Harbinger. He actually just came out with a second one, wherein he tried to make the case that the Bible specifically prophesied September 11th, and then he made predictions that would happen after that. And there was another guy, a former Muslim that I was enamored with, who spoke at Calvary Chapel one time. His name was Walid Shubat. And he wrote a very compelling book called God's War on Terror, which essentially tried to make the case that, the, that Islam is the beast of revelation. Or when John Hagee wrote Four Blood Moons. But with all of these books, and countless others like them, even though they made some compelling and emotional arguments, they used eisegetical interpretations of the biblical texts to predict future events meaning they interpreted the text by inserting things into the text that were not there. They were anachronistically applying a modern-day prophetic fulfillment that was never the intention of the author or of God. And of course, those predictions they all made years later never came to pass. And again, Joseph's predictions came true within days, or in another case, in a few years. The prophecy fulfilled in three days was fulfilled when one man, the, the cupbearer, was redeemed, and then the other one was condemned, which again was a prophetic shadow. Not only was it a prophecy that Joseph had fulfilled in the literal sense, but it was a prophetic shadow of the crucifixion of Christ, wherein one guy on the cross next to Christ was condemned, he or was redeemed, remember the one thief who said, remember me when when you're in paradise. Jesus said, surely you will be with me. While the other one continued to mock Jesus. So you have a shadow there of the two uh, people that were crucified next to Jesus. So again, these prophecies Joseph made would have dual fulfillments and serve as prophetic shadows of the ultimate event in all of history, which I will come back to. All throughout scripture, prophetic accuracy has been the test of a true prophet of God. And God, as you know, gave gave his people a, this, a specific standard in Deuteronomy 18. Let's turn there and look at that. Deuteronomy 18, verse 21. You've probably surely heard this verse, these verses before, <clears throat> but you're good to remind us. Deuteronomy eighteen twenty one says and if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously, you need not be afraid of him. Any so called prophet. a prophet, someone who speaks on behalf of God, who comes along and says, thus saith the Lord, and that thing doesn't happen, that man is immediately disqualified from ever being considered a prophet by the people. And today, in our current context, we should always be highly skeptical of a person who says, thus saith the Lord regarding something that is not found in Scripture. Because the office of prophet, as presented to us in the Old Testament, is no more. The purpose of that office was to point people to the coming Messiah. Now that Christ has come and fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies of his first coming, and the apostles have laid down the foundation for his second coming in the New Testament, the only way the church is called and gifted to prophesy now, in the normative normative sense, is through the proper proclamation of God's written word, the Bible. Yet so many heretics today continue to pretend that they are like the prophets of old, being given new revelation. Listen to the verse that preceded verse 21 in Deuteronomy 18. Verse 20 says, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. It's a death penalty for someone who says, God told me such and such, when that thing never comes to pass. Now, how many times have we heard people come up to us and say, God told me this or that? That person is claiming God said something when he did not. God says that person deserves the death penalty. And that's how serious God takes his word. Oh, Tim, that's too harsh. Well, take it up with God because it's his standard. And yes, this applies to false prophets like Joseph Smith of Mormonism and Muhammad of Islam, both of whom I'm pretty sure are currently burning in hell. I could be wrong, but based on their fruit. But there are a ton of false prophets who call themselves Christians, upon which Deuteronomy 18 applies. Kathy and I have friends from our old church who are also very impressed, or were very impressed, with this guy named Kim Clement. Uh, they and many others claim this guy is a modern-day prophet. And then he predicted things like 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina. And they, they, they claim he even predicted the election of Donald Trump. Now, I had never heard of this guy, but they were going on and on about how this guy was a great man of God, a true modern-day prophet. Which, of course, raised a giant red flag in my mind. So when I looked into this guy, it didn't take long to find out how much of a false prophet this guy is. In a video I, I saw, he said that you don't even have to be born again to get into heaven. Check, please. That's it. He's done. That disqualified him immediately before I looked into any of his so-called prophecies. But when I did look into those so-called prophecies that he had allegedly come to pass, I found that they were so very ambiguous. They were very ambiguous statements about other things that were contrived and twisted that he said prior to these events that had nothing to do with those actual events. I also saw a video where this guy openly admitted to a church congregation that he had gotten some prophecies wrong, but he dismissed those wrong prophecies as being no big deal. But the Bible says getting a prophecy wrong disqualifies a so-called prophet from being a prophet. And yet so many biblically illiterate people still call people like this prophets. If they would only read their Bibles, they would realize Not only that they're not prophets, but there is no place for this kind of office of prophet today in the Old Testament sense, because God has revealed his completed canon of scripture to us. So when we recite and exegete and rightly apply scripture, we are prophesying today. We are proclaiming God's revealed word. That is essentially what prophets do. And this is why the reformers... Going back to the Reformation, they adopted this rallying cry called "Ad Fontes." This is a Latin phrase that means "to the," meaning "ad," and "fontes," meaning "fountainhead." It was a rallying cry to the fountainhead, referring to sacred scripture. They borrowed the phrase from the Renaissance, from Renaissance humanism, which encouraged people to get back to the study of classic Greek and Latin literature. But what the reformers used it for was to say, "Let's get back to the Bible." scripture alone as the, as the source the fountainhead of all true wisdom because it bless you because it alone is proven to be god's word the traditions and christian teachings all throughout the centuries of others since then could of course contain some or much truth but unlike the purity of god's word which is without error traditions could and often do contain impurities things that God never said or commanded. The Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches are, of course, equate so-called apostolic tradition with scripture as their authority. They claim that their unbiblical traditions like the Mary doctrines, uh, iconography, purgatory, papal infallibility, and I can go on and on, many other things like that, that are not taught in scripture, they claim that those were revelations by God given to the early church fathers, even though most of these so-called apostolic traditions are not found anywhere in early church writings until several centuries after the actual apostles. In fact, they assert that scripture is also part of apostolic tradition. They assert that without church tradition, we would not even know what the canon of scripture should be. So the Roman Catholic Magisterium and the Patriarch and Bishops of the Eastern Orthodox Church are all essentially making themselves the ultimate standard of truth with regard to how we are to interpret and understand Scripture and what we even recognize as Scripture. They are pretending to be priests or intercessors between God and man, just as Joseph was to these two inmates. This has led these churches to embrace many things like Mary worship, the worship of icons, and works-based salvation. The Roman Catholic Church actually interprets the Ark of the Covenant as being prophetic of Mary. I've heard that taught by them many times. Yet nothing in Scripture ever even applies such an application. Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy reject sola scriptura. Instead, they make themselves the authority over the interpretation of Scripture, and this is called sola ecclesia, meaning the church, ecclesia meaning the church. Or, more specifically, the church leadership, the magisterium. But that is not at all the structure of what we see in the New Testament. Just as Joseph was given revelation by God concerning the interpretation of these dreams, the church as a whole has been given revelation of sacred scripture. And the nature of this revelation requires it to interpret itself. We don't need Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox bishops or a Pope to reveal an interpretation of scripture. The Bible interprets itself. We just need to have faithful men who have proven their ability to rightly divide or rightly discern the word of truth. But we are not we are not coming up with new traditions like, you know, praying to Mary or iconography. Um, these things, they, they try to read back into the text of Scripture centuries later. Also, the canon of Scripture was never voted on. The, the, the books that we have in the Bible, that, those were never voted on or determined by a group of bishops or priests, as Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox churches claim. Oh yes, the Roman Catholic Church officially decreed the canon of at the Council of Trent in 1546, some 1,500 years after the Church had already started recognizing what was divine scripture, but that certainly doesn't make their case any stronger. No church council, no pope, no group of bishops, nor did the Roman Emperor Constantine determine what books were to be considered sacred scriptures. No one chose what books were in except for God. Saying the church chose the books of the Bible is like saying that we chose who our parents would be. No, God's word was revealed to and recognized by God's Holy Spirit-filled church. Long before these later church denominations were formed. In fact, right within the pages of the New Testament, Peter equated Paul's writings with sacred scripture. In 2 Peter 3.15, he said, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Peter was equating Paul's writing with the other scriptures, the Old Testament. Paul also endorsed himself as a writer of God's word. In 1 Corinthians 14, 37, it says, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So Paul and the apostles knew they were writing sacred scripture john confirmed this in revelation revelation 1 3 blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it written in it for the time is near paul endorsed luke by equating his writings with the old testament paul writes in one timothy 5 18 for scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the, and the laborer deserves his wages. That second part of that quote that Paul was writing there is found nowhere in the Old Testament. Um, the laborer de- deserves his wages is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. So Paul considered Luke's writings when he was quoting this, because um, he was quoting from Luke, he considers that on the same level as sacred scripture. Since he quotes them both in the same line that says that he was quoting scripture. The point is that the canon of Scripture, the books that we recognize today as the books of the Bible, um, were established immediately through God's interpretation. Yes, it took time for the church as a whole to recognize it, but right from the start, the writers of the of the, of the New Testament knew they were writing sacred Scripture, and it was right from the start. God God's canon was established. Just within these statements from Peter, John, Luke, and Paul, twenty five of the 27 books in the New Testament are already considered part of the divine canon. And Roman Catholics will often argue and say, well, there's no inspired table of contents written in the Bible. But yes, there is. (laughs) As I've just shown, the Bible itself establishes what, what books are inspired of God. Any debate over certain books being considered part of sacred scripture came much later when the Gnostics started using the apostles' names to establish their own heretical books. Like the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, and the Gospel of Mary or the Gospel of Judas. These were all later Gnostic writings, and they were proven to be forgeries, written centuries after the deaths of the persons that these books were named after. But it was because of these later 2nd and 3rd century forgeries that certain books like the second second epistle of Peter or the book of James or 1st 2nd and 3rd John and Revelation were starting to be questioned as to whether or not they should be part of the sacred canon of scripture. But despite the confusion that the gnostic texts caused, there was enough recognition of the inspiration of the biblical books that caused the 1st century those 1st century source books to not be dropped from the recognized canon, which w- was within the universal church. So when the Catholic says a Pope or a group of bishops gave us the Bible, they have no idea what they're talking about. Or when they simply or they might be simply lying to defend their their, their doctrine of sola ecclesia. Scripture was revealed to the Church, one letter and book at a time, and recognized by the various churches when they were written. Therefore, just as God breathed out his word through the apostles, God also breathed out the canon of his word through the universal church. No individual church can come along and claim they gave us the canon. That claim has no basis in history. Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox like to dismiss the doctrine of Sola Scriptura as being non-biblical, yet they are simply replacing God's word with the ultimate authority, Of their magisterium which is certainly unbiblical they are essentially calling themselves prophets and acting like i said before acting like joseph did even though god has not gifted them with that role jesus himself and the apostle paul taught the principle of returning to scripture as the ultimate authority of truth in order to keep ourselves free from error as possible as much as possible Jesus, who spoke of himself as giving living water to those who listen, told his hearers at one point, you are wrong because you do not know the scriptures. Jesus rebuked the religious leaders of the day and their faulty interpretation of God's word in, by saying in Matthew 22, 31, it says, he said, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Jesus did not rebuke the Pharisees by citing tradition or what other religious leaders had said. No, he went to what was written, what God said in in what was written. He went to God's written, written word. And Luke commended the Bereans who verified Paul's teaching by examining the scriptures daily to see if these things are true. So ad fontes, or sola sola scriptura, ought to be our rallying cry, too. And today we are blessed with an abundance of access to God's word. It is easier than ever for us to go back to the source. Sadly, though many are very happy to just listen to God's God's word being interpreted and wrongly applied and not checked, they blindly accept what popular heretics like Andy Stanley and Joel Osteen and Rick Warren and Pope Francis tell them, or what their church tradition tells them. Now, I'm not one who dismisses the early church fathers, but a a cursory study of church history will reveal that there was much disagreement over certain church doctrines all throughout history, including our early church fathers. It's even recorded in the New Testament that the apostles disagreed over some things. So for anyone to claim the early church fathers all believed this or that, they are simply speaking out of ignorance, as there was a wide variety of disagreement on secondary issues. I heard one recent convert to Eastern Orthodoxy claim that Martin Luther took the Deuter- Quranic, deuterocanonical books, the apocryphal books, out of the, out of the Bible. But those books had been de- debated and rejected from the canon by many long before Luther was ever born. St. Jerome rejected them. Melito of Sardis, the Bishop of Smyrna in 170 AD did not include the apocryphal books in the canon. Cyril of Jerusalem in 350 AD rejected them. Origen rejected them. So this issue is not even scratching the surface over the number of debates the early church had over certain issues. So no one can make a sweeping claim that all the early church believed this or that regarding certain doctrines. The point is that we need to be diligent in our study of God's word that we be not deceived by the many false prophets that are out there and infiltrating the church. We have far more access to scriptures and information about them than the early church even did. Anyway, all interpretations belong to God. Therefore, we must go to his word to establish whether an interpretation is true or not. This doesn't mean we are endorsing solo (laughs) scriptura. As we still need to be taught um, to rightly exegete Scripture by by men who have proven themselves to be able to rightly understand and interpret God's Word, but when we are taught, we must always look for the foundation of any teaching to be soundly grounded in the Scripture. Again, Joseph had no Scripture to guide him, but he had been given two dreams already, wherein he knew God had spoken to him, and that may have been the source of his confidence regarding the dreams. Of these two inmates. But let's talk about this account. Why was Joseph even in prison? Why did God allow this innocent and faithful young man to be betrayed by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, sexually assaulted by Potiphar's wife, and then falsely accused by her and imprisoned? And he would continue to be imprisoned for another two years after this account. Scripture says that Joseph was 17 years old when the brothers sold him to the Ishmaelites in in Genesis 37. By the time he was released from prison and appointed as head over Egypt, he was 30 years old. Therefore, 13 years had passed from the time that Joseph was sold by his brothers to the time that he left prison. But why would God allow this? Well, as I talked about earlier, God was preparing this young man to be a leader, a man who would not only save countless lives, but would establish a safe environment for God's chosen nation to thrive and grow. Joseph was to establish a stable period wherein the nation of Israel could grow under the guidance of Yahweh, until a man named Moses would come along and carry the baton of being the leader of God's people. The Bible says very little about this period after Joseph and before Moses um when they went into slavery all that's said is mentioned briefly in exodus chapter one and it seems that joseph had left such a strong influence on the israelites and the people around him that they were able to thrive in this period they then they, they grew and multiplied i think god prepared joseph for this period of growth with the trials that he was facing and he faithfully endured those trials as a, as a young man through, throughout his life. And again, that is the application for us in our trials. As we have talked about week after week, right now in our country, things look terrible. <laughs> in our culture, and even in the, the visible church, it's a mess. And the stuff that, that all the stuff that's going on will translate into things becoming more and more uncomfortable for us. But we must be faithful and serve our Lord wherever we are and however, we're, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. No matter how unjust we are being treated. Serving the Lord doesn't necessarily mean we must submit to all forms of oppression. We still must draw the line when that oppression attempts to divide us from the Lord. But, when, but Joseph really didn't have a choice. No matter how much he protested, he would be betrayed by his brothers. He would be sold into slavery. He would be sexually harassed by Potiphar's wife and thrown into prison for it. But despite all this injustice, he continued to trust in the Lord in the midst of his circumstances. God had done that in him by his grace, lest we give too much glory to Joseph. This was God working in him. And it is likely that Potiphar knew that Joseph was innocent because normally such an offense would bring about the death penalty. But I think Potiphar recognized that his wife was probably lying. <laughs> so to cover things up, he put him, in, put him in jail. And then Joseph was given more privileges and responsibilities in jail because of his faithfulness and because of God's grace. The innocent Joseph took the punishment for the guilty bride of Potiphar, which is yet another prophetic picture of Christ. Who took the punishment for his bride, the church? And in chapter forty, these two stewards of the king, who were in the king's prison with Joseph, were accused of some kind of offense against the king. The wine steward and the baker were two of the most important positions you could have in serving the king. Um, the king had to totally trust them because they were the one—they were the guardians of his food and drink. Apparently something happened, and therefore the king blamed them both. But they both ended up in prison having dreams that troubled them. And they both had dreams that had parallel that, that paralleled each other. Both dreams were about their occupations. Both dreams had groups of threes in them. And both men were greatly troubled by their dreams. And that, that should stand out to us, too, because today we would just, you know, have a dream and and probably forget about it a few minutes later. But these guys were greatly troubled by these things. And scripture tells us that God uses dreams to speak to people. Acts 2.17, it says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Job Thirty-three, fourteen. It says, "For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they while they slumber in their beds, then He opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings, that He might turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. Now, lest we get carried away with that." That is not the normative way in which God speaks to His new covenant people today, known as the Church. As I said earlier, God speaks to us through His Word, and, and by the Holy Spirit given, who dwells within us, given us understanding and the application of His Word. Um, yes. And any dream that somebody might have, if it's from God, it's going to be in harmony with His revealed Word. But it seems that God typically speaks through dreams when his word is unavailable to people. But that that which is spoken in the dreams is always consistent, as I said, with his revealed word. I think that's why we often hear about Muslims coming to faith um, in the true Jesus Christ through their dreams, as they often are living in oppressed Islamic nations that outlaw the Bible. So certainly God was speaking to these two men through their dreams. And somehow God gave Joseph the interpretation of those dreams joseph's faithfulness had opened the door for him to be trusted by the, by the guard and have responsibility over them and his faithfulness caused him to be caring enough to inquire as to why these men were so sad and then these men trusted joseph enough to share their dreams with him this was all the result of god's grace on joseph's life in the sense that he made him a vessel that he would use to witness to these men And all of this, again, spoke to his faithfulness and the peace that he had despite his circumstances, which was a gift from God. No matter what situation he was in, he was ready to serve the Lord, and God prospered him in that. Remember, Joseph asked this wine steward, this cupbearer, to remember him when he was restored restored to the king. Joseph asked the man to put in a good word for him with the Pharaoh so that he too could be released. But what happened? The man forgot. Sadly, how often does that describe us? (laughs) When God gives us a word as we go about and we go about our daily lives and forget what God had spoken to us that day in our devotions. We might read scripture in the morning and then go about our day not even thinking about what God had spoken to us in that scripture. I need to, we need to be meditating on God's word daily and throughout the day mm-hmm. for in that we will find that peace in the midst of such dire circumstances in that God will use us and prosper us in the service of his kingdom that we would be have God's word at the forefront of our mind and be prepared as Mark often is to share the gospel with whomever we come with come across with do you want to be lured, used by the Lord Meditate on his word throughout your day, Mm -hmm. and the Lord will open the doors for you to serve him. But the big picture takeaway of this chapter, chapter is that, again, it is a beautiful prophetic shadow of Christ. As the faithful and innocent Joseph, who was unjustly imprisoned, falsely accused after being betrayed by his brothers, he would render judgment to a redeemed man and condemn a guilty man. He was rendered as dead by his brothers as they lied to their father, much like how the Pharisees would continue to pretend to serve God the Father and lie to him after they crucified Christ. But as future chapters will show, Joseph will be raised up to the right hand of Pharaoh, just as Christ was raised up to the right hand of God the Father. And his brothers would bow before him just as every knee shall bow before Christ one day. This account of Joseph is so prophetically packed with shadows of Jesus Christ. Um, I went over much of that in, in my last sermon. But again, it establishes God's written word as divinely inspired. Something we, It proves itself to be supernatural. That no man could have put this together in the way it is. Um, and the standard that God gives us to know which word is a word God has spoken. He's even told us that in Isaiah 46, verse 8 through 11. It says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mine, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all of my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. That speaks of the absolute sovereignty of God and how he has decreed all things that will happen, and he has proclaimed things that will happen and proven who he is. How do we know what God has declared? It is written in his word. All other claims cannot meet this criteria laid out in this passage. Therefore, anyone who rejects what we call sola scriptura is rejecting God's own word and opening themselves for deception, which sadly we are seeing much of the church falling into that today. So with that, let's uh, let's end. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Again, for your word, Lord, and um, this, uh, this amazing account of, of Joseph, Lord, and his faithfulness and the, the gift that you gave him to be able to uh, reveal these men's dreams and speak of the future in advance. And that was just a small, uh, small picture of what you've done for us in your word, how you've shown us, Lord God, how you spoke all these things ahead of time, and then Christ came and fulfilled those things so that we can look back on your completed canon of Scripture and know that you have spoken and know that you have accomplished these things and know that we can trust in your future promises to come that they will come to pass. Lord, let us never forget that, but let us meditate that every single day, that we would have a peace that surpasses all understanding, that no matter what circumstance comes our way, no matter how uncomfortable our situations may be, Lord, we would be able to be like Joseph was and be able to serve you in the midst of that with joy and peace. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.